Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And Casey, we just had a wonderful conversation about academic freedom. With Tony Rosso, Professor Tony Rosso from the English Department, who has such a long history with the Faculty Union, the American Association of University Professors, AAUP, has worked in and around academic freedom and has just a big picture perspective that actually I don't think we've really had on the podcast to this point about higher education in the United States. Yes, very critical conversation, especially for students to listen to get some behind the scene knowledge of, you know, how a classroom goes and the perspective of the perspective of a professor. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, welcome back, everyone. Casey, we're about to have a very interesting conversation. We're back again. Academic freedom. We are here to talk about academic freedom. And it's something, you know, that we've been, you may have been hearing about a lot in the news. It may be on your mind. And we have with us Professor Tony Rosso, who has a lot to share about academic freedom. He, at Southern Connecticut State University, as part of our faculty union, the AAUP, served for many, many years as the academic freedom officer. So we are in great company. And, you know, Jamil, we got to start off with the, the basics, right? Yes. Academic freedom is a term that a lot of people throw around, but I think we should pause and, you know, define our terms. So, Tony, how would you define or how do people define academic freedom? What is that? Well, and like any term with such broad definitions available to it, uh, it's really hard to pin down, particularly in relation to free speech. So but I would make that assertion right off the bat that uh, academic freedom is different from Mm. free speech. Free speech is a constitutional right, which in which you can even express falsehoods, if you wish. Academic freedom is a professional right, a freedom granted to scholars and teachers to pursue and disseminate knowledge for the public good. That's a very important distinction that In technical terms, academic freedom pertains primarily to the professoriate in their pursuit of knowledge, which is a freedom granted by tenure that enables this free pursuit or this free search for knowledge that may be unconventional and ruffle feathers. Therefore, this pursuit to benefit the public must be protected. Free speech is a different kind of animal there. It is, it is the constitutional right to express yourself, which also is something that professors share, students, we all share on a campus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you say evolution is a satanic theory, you have the free speech to say that. But if you say, as a biology professor, evolution is a satanic theory, that's unacceptable. So that's an important distinction. Yeah. So I think about as a professor, when I'm, you know, putting my syllabi together for classes I'm teaching, no one is reviewing those to come back and say, oh, hey, you can't teach this book 
or mm-hmm. when you teach this topic, you have to teach this in this particular way that I have the the freedom as long as I'm not, you know, calling theory satanic <laughs> falsehoods. I have the freedom to to teach the the subject as as I see fit as is you know, determined by my field, by my professional colleagues. Yes. That a donor or a political influence or the administration is not going to have influence on that. They don't have the right because your knowledge, your pursuit of knowledge is based, as you say, on this collective body that is lateral to you, right? It's colleagues, it's the professional field, Academic freedom is a professional standard, whereas for the state or the Board of Regents or the administration, they operate in a more vertical and hierarchical manner. Professors operate in a more lateral and democratic manner, but it requires this kind of understanding that this is a communal body of knowledge that the individual professor brings to the class. Right, which is different than, you know, someone who one of these characters who comes to campus and with a megaphone to spew whatever it is that they, like we had a, a visitor on campus a couple of weeks ago, to falsehoods of various kinds, mm-hmm. incendiary mm-hmm. stuff, that that would be an expression of, of his free speech, but not related to academic freedom. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. So this is something that is, you know, we're talking about professors, we're talking about the classroom setting on campus. How do students factor into this? Well, I think students, one, will be directly impacted by how a faculty structure their class. What are the readings? What are the materials they're using? So how they use their freedom in that capacity will directly impact a student education and their experience in the classroom. That's first. I also think about how faculty, what they allow as classroom discussions and as group presentations, how that may impact the student you know, experience in the classroom and what they're looking at and how they're talking about particular topics. Are they using nuance or not? Like how we're framing conversations, especially when it comes to societal matters. So I can see both of those things you know, really impacting students. And students may not being so conscious that these are academic freedom issues. So those are two things I think about off top of my mind. Um, and also what a faculty allows and doesn't allow you to read or talk about in the classroom. You know, like if I want to give a presentation about anti-racism and a faculty says, no, that's not appropriate for this context of this course, that would impact me as a student. Or maybe they would say yes, and that will impact students differently. So I think about the space and how how we create and frame conversations and how we're talking about things, especially in underclassmen, you know, like first, second year level courses, particularly. Yeah, I mean, even issues of, um, you know, of bias or tolerance or, or trauma, if they affect the intellectual life of the person's learning in the classroom, then that is fundamentally related to academic freedom, because uh, in the, from the professorial perspective, from the profession standpoint, academic freedom involves the professor's freedom to pursue and disseminate the knowledge, and it requires a student's freedom to learn. So Jamal hit it right on the head there. I just want to ask the question that I'm sure folks at this point may be wondering, so why does academic freedom matter? 
You know, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter? Well, academic freedom, uh, as I said, is 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 a right granted to to the professoriate to pursue and disseminate knowledge for the public good. It's not for themselves. It's not for the particular institution. It's to educate the public, the society. So it has a social value that you protect academic freedom. So there's really kind of social value built into it that I think is very important. Problem is, predominant number of professors in the academies today across the country are part-time or adjunct faculty. And part-time faculty do not have tenure. And without tenure, academic freedom cannot be guaranteed because then they are subject to the hiring and firing by administrators and chairs and boards. So that's very important to keep in mind that when you're talking about academic freedom, you're also talking about the other fundamental principle of tenure. And that's probably even more controversial. Why should certain workers have tenure? And tenure gets misunderstood as job security. That is not what it means. Tenure means the security to protect academic freedom, the pursuit of knowledge. So that's very important. And I think actually a lot of students don't, you know, when students are in the classroom, a professor is a professor a lot of the time. And I often will meet students who are talking about a professor, somebody who I hadn't met on campus and I'm a tenure track, but not yet tenured faculty member. And they know the distinctions between ranks maybe, but in a class, mm-hmm. a professor of sociology is a professor, whether it's their, yeah. their, their first class, part-time. And so, I mean, I also think this is a really useful conversation for students to be hearing, to know that, that some faculty are much more protected in terms of, of academic freedom than others. And they are likely to have both tenured and untenured professors in any given semester. I think, Jamal, that would be important in a way. I'd like to hear your response to this, that if part-timers are, even at Southern, they're 64% of the professoriate here. Full-time professors are about 40%. Nationally, it's closer to 75% part-timers without academic freedom or tenure. So we can talk about what the economics of that has been over the last generation. But for your sake, I'm not, I mean, just for you to think about is in terms of having a social justice university, where's the economic justice involved in that? If part-timers don't have tenure, they do not have power to push for economic justice for themselves. And they're like the DoorDash workers in the economy at large. Mm-hmm. I really like the way you just framed that because, you know, I'm a first generation college student. When I arrived at Southern, I had no idea there was a difference in ranking one with professors. I thought all professors were on this equal playing field. Neither did I. I did not realize we had part time faculty in terms of adjuncts and what does that mean for their profession? Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefits in which they received and what they were allowed yes. and not allowed to do in the classroom. Or even right. the culture of being an adjunct, you know, working at different institutions to kind of pulled together a full state of classes for yourself. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that some faculty were tenured and what that even meant. 
and some faculty weren't. <laughs> right. And some faculty felt real comfortable in their roles to say what they want, and some faculty ain't have that same comfort. So mm-hmm. I can imagine for a lot of yeah. students, this may be the first time they're learning and hearing about the differences of the profession itself and how that will impact their experience at Southern or at any other institution. Yeah, if if the academic freedom is to guarantee the free pursuit of knowledge, that's one stage. The second stage is student learning when you go to the classroom. So you have the guaranteed protection to pursue your knowledge in scholarship. But when you get to the classroom, as you're saying, Jamal, it has to be done in a way that facilitates student learning. So there's actually two stages to it. And if the part-timer doesn't feel safe to bring challenging new knowledge to the classroom, then that does not serve the public good. It may serve the administration or the board or even the state of Connecticut legislature, but not the public. So right there is very important distinction that serving the public good uh, means getting more part-timers tenure and better deal to survive economically. Absolutely. And that means also a better education for students. Exactly. In the classroom and serving and serving the public good. In addition to just, yeah, I mean, it, it is true that the DoorDash is a great and a gig worker. It, yeah, it it's not even an analogy. Uh, you know, adjunct faculty, frankly, even those who have been teaching at the same institution for a long time, it is functionally a gig. And it's door dashing. They got to leave Southern and, uh, you know, yeah. dash well, over to UNH and then dash over to Quinnipiac, maybe up to Manchester just to make ends meet. And they don't get mileage. They don't get that paid for. Or healthcare. They don't get office space, right? They don't get the kind of work dignity that other profs get. And they're like the predominant or the majority of faculty now. So does that serve students? Part-timers are great people. They're great teachers. But on another level, they do have this restraint and constraint built in. And academic freedom is designed that we can't be constrained by the powers that be or the economic purse strings. That's a good way of putting it. I'm also thinking about, you know, how does academic freedom play into account in in in-class discussions? You know, Mm -hmm. I often think about, especially when it comes to social justice, you know, we expect the general public to be able to have these contentious debates and conversations about race, sexuality, gender, have these conversations, you know, in their homes, in their workplaces. But often sometimes it feels as if we can't have those same conversations in our classroom. And I always believe that if we can't talk about these issues in a space of education, It'd be really difficult to expect folks outside of this space to have these conversations. So how do you think academic freedom plays into account when it comes to maybe, you know, social justice conversations? Well, tell me a little bit more about why why you think those conversations can't be had. What's your perspective? And I try to fill in because I'm not quite sure yet uh, that this that this happens in my classroom. Yeah. Or my colleague. You know, I was recently a student, so I've been in many classroom spaces where, you know, we're having a conversation around social justice, which one can be a hot topic for folks, especially if they don't have the conversation often around race, let's say, for instance, you know, and students are having a conversation and maybe it goes a little off the rails. Right. 
I've seen many faculty not be able to manage that conversation or really help that conversation yeah. progress and move yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, I've seen many faculty, you know, pounce around the topic in class to prevent a contentious conversation from being had. So I have seen those kind of things in classrooms where it's like either one, we're timid to have the conversation because we're scared of what folks will say or may say, or we don't know how to control the conversation if it maybe gets too far past, you know, something that's academic or a pursuit of knowledge and becomes something else. Well, yeah, well, they might be part-timers and just fear that they can be fired for, you know, causing some kind of controversy. They may feel, I don't know, I'd have to have more of a specific example. Sometimes I rein it in. I like a free-ranging classroom. I'm an English teacher, and what the hell can't you talk about in English? But, you know, you can't talk about some things in biology, right? Or even mm-hmm. history, or some topics are, are kind of the professor in the notion of academic freedom has a certain expertise that the public trusts them with. And if they feel like the conversation is getting out of the realm of their expertise, they may be reticent or hesitant to pursue it further. So it's not always, you know, you're just kind of chicken shit to pursue difficult topics. I like the way you put that. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Swearing always spices it up. (laughs) Well, I think there's certain, yeah, some people have comfort in, in what you're calling like a free range classroom you know, that there's a certain comfort level with dissent, with debate, where that's really encouraged. We can disagree, but I feel comfortable moderating or facilitating conversations like that. And I just think also many people who become professors actually don't have that kind of pedagogical training that a lot of times we learn by doing, or perhaps we learn outside. I think some folks really are more subject matter experts who become teachers and become good at teaching, perhaps, hopefully, but don't necessarily have the classroom facilitation skills, especially when it comes to stuff that is contentious or or difficult topics related to social justice or things like abortion or things related to mental health or trauma. There's a whole lot of stuff that people feel uncomfortable discussing in an open classroom setting. Take, for example, academic freedom. Why don't more of our colleagues fight for it? Why don't they fight for part-timers right, to get tenure or better conditions? Their temperaments, their backgrounds, right, their emotional development may mean they just shy a bit away from that kind of confrontation. Now, I hear what you're saying, and I, as a more of a combative personality in some ways. I think I'm much glad I'm growing older and a little gentler about all these things. But at the same time, I've always been in the union fighting. I was in social justice movements and activist movements in New Haven outside of the university. I'm comfortable with confronting the powers that be. But a lot of people just aren't for various reasons. And that's one answer. Although, I'd like to hear your response to how the professors have handled that. Well, I, I mean, that question, why aren't more of us fighting loudly for, part, for part-timers? for Or even our own academic freedom. Or our own academic out. freedom. You know, my first, my instinctual response is that it's fear. 
fear of their losing their their job or fear of kind of stepping out or they got too many things to do already and they're overworked and you know their lives are full and there's covid and the you know the economy uh, the climate yeah. all these things to worry about do i need to, that on my plate and i i get that right but uh, you know there are so many things to worry about at once and you know if we look especially projecting into the future 10 20 years you know the if the percentage of part-timers you know, continues to increase, as is the trend. We have fewer tenured faculty members. I think many of us also take for granted the academic freedom that we do have. I think that's absolutely right. Now, when you get inside the classroom, Jamal, uh, and you're fighting and you're pushing, do all your fellow classmates feel like you? Or are you kind of one of these people, you know, like me, that want kind of move the envelope? I feel like students, one, think differently. You know, there's students, there's students in the classroom that are, you know, actively thinking about these issues. And there's some students that obviously are not because of many. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. I think some students want to have those contentious conversations. I think some students prefer not to. I think it's a mixed bag, especially as Southern with the demographic we have. It's a mixed bag. So I have seen students do both. So... You know, thinking it from your end, I can, Casey, and I can think of it from our end, but how might we build right. uh, solidarity, as it used to be called, or build these bridges? I think about from a student perspective, because, you know, when you're a student, you're concerned with, you know, I have these classes to pass. Mm, I have yeah. to work two, three jobs to pay for yes, classes. Yes. I want to yes. have a social life. I think about those. You know, maybe I have a crisis every semester or different crises. But I feel like once I started having relations, relationships, meaningful relationships with my faculty, you know, going to office hours, talking with my faculty, mm-hmm. I started to understand one, the significance of academic freedom, but also other things that come with how do things show up before you get into the classroom? What are the politics around this? What is my experience? Mm-hmm. How does that impact your experience? I started understanding the bigger picture. I think students can be more of an advocate for faculty, like how faculty are an advocate for students, if they knew mm-hmm. what was going on behind behind the scenes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think more students would show up and would speak out on behalf of their faculty if they knew the issue at hand. Good point. Why don't they know? Why don't they know? Maybe enough faculty don't tell. Don't tell them what's going on. You know, how do you tell each class you have that, you're an adjunct, that means X, Y, and Z for you in your life. And this is how it impacts your education. I'm not sure how you bring that up to every class. But it would be nice if more students did know because everybody has favorite adjuncts, well, favorite professors that are adjuncts. Everybody would love to support their favorite professor, no matter how they can, the same way that professor supports them in times of crises. So if there was more of a communication there, I can see. Yeah, I agree. You know, and then we're back to this academic freedom being a bit more of a professional right than just a, a f- constitutional right. Like I can go in a few minutes early. I'm like, well, there's this rally that the professors are holding. We'd like you guys to come on board. Like I was teaching the New Testament as literature today, and we're dealing with uh, why Jesus sits across from the treasury and makes fun of the people of putting in all the wealth. And then a widow has just two small pennies. And he says, now she gets to be in the kingdom with us, right? Why does he choose? Now, how do I push that? Like, well, Jesus is clearly on the side uh, of the poor, of the economic dispossessed, 
right? Is that me pushing a leftist line on the New Testament? See, with that, that I got to announce that to my class today that this is going to sound like, you know, what some might object to about left-wing professors imposing their ideology on students. And I say, now, once you know that, this can be defended by this scholarly work, that scholarly work. How do you respond to it? And they, and they, they responded very well to it. And I imagine our students responded differently than, say, the students down the street at Yale. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, the school down the street? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, besides the school down the street, I could okay, a couple good. in the area. That's for a different day, maybe. But okay. academic freedom, when it comes to professors that may have more conservative teaching styles versus maybe more liberal, how does that play a part in what they could say, what they can teach, the point of views they can share? And then how does that resonate with students? Like, Great, great question. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. KC, what do you think? <laughs> That is a great question, Jamil. That's a tough one, too. I mean, there's a national level conversation in which conservative professors are saying that they do not have academic Mm -hmm. freedom. And I would push back against that. And I would also say it's an oversimplification, certainly, because also within what, what folks might consider liberal or leftist thinking, or, or teaching or progressive, you know, a social justice university like we we say we are, where even we, we can't have sort of a free debate in, in that way because of, mm-hmm. you know, call-out culture and people being afraid of being wrong. And there's actually – so I think that that's an oversimplification. But I do think that it's an interesting tactic. I'm curious, you're, you know, with your experience, Tony – what you think about that that argument which one in particular now casey about the conservatives arguing that they don't oh. have academic freedom they have academic freedom but that doesn't protect them from the free speech rights of a student to raise certain issues say if you're teaching african co- colonialism and you talk about its benefits to the african people and then some students want to raise that issue to say perhaps in even an offensive way to the professor that you're a sellout, you're leaving the people behind, right? And that's the kind of pressure that's being talked about. But on the other hand, this notion that conservative professors don't have academic freedom has a context, as you talked about in your questions to me. And if we've seen the, the public university as it was constituted after the New Deal and World War II, which saw the middle class growing in leaps and bounds with the working class, with diversity in, you know, around gender and race that became very popular by the 70s, there has been a conservative effort by what I would call the powers that be, but this so-called neoliberal economics and its relation to the government and boards of trustees and think tanks to make the culture wars part of the way that they want to disband this broad-based middle class that was formed after World War II, that right when they began to bring black folk and women folk, or however you want to say that, into this middle class, working class, 
right? Working class people, you have uh, a gender parity, you have racial parity, critical race theory, all these things being raised. Right then is when the culture wars began to be used as a, as a cultural weapon to go along with the economic attack on the middle class to where we see it today alongside the evisceration of the full-time professors. So I would put that in a context that you're not the only one being challenged here with your academic freedom. You have two-thirds of the academy that doesn't have academic freedom. What are you saying about that? Absolutely. This brings back a memory. Um, so when you do um, new student orientation, when you first come to campus and you spend mm -hmm. those two nights on campus, I believe it is, it was a long time ago for me, but you know, you spend two nights on campus, you live in the dorms for a little while, and then they bring you to a classroom. So you can have a mock classroom experience to break the nerves for your first day of school, which is okay. a terrific idea. The faculty I had day one said, you know, most of the things you learned in K through 12 was a lie. Christopher Columbus, <laughs> that was the first thing he said to me. And oh, I was actually really excited because, you know, as a student, K through 12, you really cannot debate your teacher. You cannot debate your teacher. It seems you, you get sent to the principal office if you say Christopher Columbus. That seems a little extreme, but I'll go with you. Here. No, you go with me. Just go with me here. Because I, oh, I got in trouble quite a few times for trying to debate my teacher growing up. But in this new setting as a college student, you have the ability to raise arguments in the classroom and mm -hmm. raise debates about topics and about opinions mm -hmm. and points of views and whether something is accurate or inaccurate that you don't necessarily have growing up in a K-12 public system. Maybe I didn't have. I'm not sure if other folks had different experiences. But I think about that in terms of academic freedom, that the ability for a student to have pushback against what's being said or taught. That's essential to academic freedom, as I understand it, even in this professional standard way, that there's kind of, I was talking with uh, Professor Cindy Stretch today, and I was laying out some of the things I might want to say. And she said, well, then you're saying there's a two-stage process to academic freedom and student learning. One is we have the freedom to do the research and to pursue the knowledge on our own without being constrained and prescribed by the administration or the board or the state. On the other hand, we have to bring that knowledge to the classroom. And if the student has academic freedom to learn, then learning has to be, as Cindy called it, iterative, or there has to be something new brought to the table, or it's not knowledge in this new way, either presenting knowledge in an updated way, say the Gospel of Mark, in 2021, right, or producing new knowledge through the debate in the classroom as students raise these issues, that's how learning occurs. Without the student participation, and I get, you know, there's courses that are lecture courses. You got to learn your chops first before you can become a bass player. I get all that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I will say, Professor Cynthia Stretch is one of my favorite faculty of all time. I will say that first. Amazing, <laughs> Mine too. Instructor, amazing instructor really yep. helped build my education but Good. yes 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 always give that shout out when i can but does students have the academic freedom to learn and pursue the knowledge in which they want to pursue or is that something different it's related because if you have the public trust in the professor to become a professional 
to have professional expertise in a subject, which is collective, then they're bringing that to the classroom. If the student doesn't have a comparable expertise, then in the learning situation, kind of like you're coming in to learn bass, are you going to hear how you have to learn bass before you go out and become, uh, you know, a free jazz player just playing whatever you want? Yeah, I'm also thinking about independent studies. So when I was an undergrad, I did quite a few independent studies, you know, and that's completely different from an in-class experience. You know, you have a topic, a project, you're working with a faculty or maybe more than one faculty, and you're pursuing this knowledge as far as you can take it. Mm -hmm. Students in that context then have like more academic freedom to take an idea and run with it, or maybe not. Of course, because you're not constrained by the collective in a classroom. You have other people. Prof has to think about 12, 15, 20, 30 people. If it's just one-on-one, I mean, that's why you pursue independent study, to deepen what you kind of know about the topic and to go in your own direction. There are different functions in those courses, like an introductory course. Some profs feel like they have to lecture the whole time. I would challenge that particular methodology, but they have the right academic freedom to do it that way. I would say that, so most students, Jamil, are not like you. That you are ready, you know, as soon as someone's talking about like, oh, we're gonna, you're gonna unlearn all this stuff you, you, you know, you learned before, you're excited, you're ready to argue and push back, you're having countless, yeah, independent study with me, one with Cindy, you know, you really are taking control over your own education. I do think a lot of students come in and they really have to be pushed or invited to do that because they come in and they want to know, like, just tell me what to do. Like, what do I need to know? Give me the information more as a transaction rather than thinking about themselves as independent thinkers and intellectuals pursuing an education. And maybe they don't want their uh, feathers ruffled for, you know, if I'm teaching New Testament, and I come in and say, you're going to have to unlearn what you learned about the Bible uh, and Jesus Christ. You know, that's a little bit different than saying, OK, this is Shakespeare class. You're going to have to unlearn what you learned about Shakespeare. Uh, you know, I mean, how many are going to know about Shakespeare compared with how many people do know something about the Christian religion? But, it, you know, it takes a rare person to want to be challenged in that way. And it takes a rare professor to get it. And, to build the atmosphere, as you're talking about, Jamal, within the classroom to make students want to accept new knowledge and do the hard work necessary to get it, I'd add. I'm also thinking about the context of SESU. You know, we are a public institution. We are in the Northeast, which tends to be a more accepting part of the country compared to mm-hmm. other places, possibly. So how does academic freedom show up differently when you compare it to the South, when you compare it to small Christian colleges or other universities across the, um, across different states, does it show up differently there? Well, you're assuming that a progressive ideology is something that uh, a Texas college should share with you or that the South is not a progressive as the Northeast when, you know, these are definitions that, you know, are open to debate. Mm. So a Christian college still has a right to say, okay, we're going to you know, teach this particular religious curriculum, but the professor has a right to present it in the way that they see fit, even in a Christian college, even at Liberty College. Hmm. There is that right. 
So when you have this academic freedom, are you receiving pushback as well? I'm assuming so, possibly, right? You're receiving this pushback from the university, maybe from admin, from donors, from outside sources, possibly. How did that stand up? You've seen that issue going on over at Yale with uh, Professor Beverly Gage and, you know, the really well-funded kind of programming so-called grand strategy that she quit because there was undue influence on her ability to conduct the program. At, at, this is a little dicey now. You got me talking about Southern. It's, it's how, yeah. <laughs> and luckily, in some ways, not luckily, because I'd do it anyway, but I, I retired in June and I'm teaching one course. And, you know, I'm pretty safe to say what I'm about to say. But what I've seen, let me give you one example. Uh, the AAUP has... KC introduced me is the American Association of University Professors. It's the professional organization founded in 1915 by John Dewey and others that eventually led to the protection of academic freedom, tenure, and shared governance. These are the three pillars of our profession. Now, you can't have academic freedom without tenure, and you can't have a right to talk with the administration about what's the best way to move forward in this day and age if we don't have a say about academic matters. Well, the statements that we produced in the 60s have been pretty much abandoned or very much curtailed since the 90s with the computer technology and with a more corporate model in the university. Mm. Now, even this place, as personable as, quote, President Joe is, unquote, or President Bertolino, and as much as he's a good guy about social justice than that, he's part of an administration that wanted to get rid in the last negotiate in this negotiating round of our contract, wants to get rid of the all university promotion and tenure committee over which we control educational matters such as promotion and tenure and renewal. There are those incursions, or they want to say, we don't have enough money, there's a fiscal problem, we can't give you as many sabbaticals as you want, or we're not going to tenure the person that's ready to go up for tenure because that means a commitment of millions of dollars if we tenure you. And this person is ready, they've passed the P&T committee and everybody wants them here, everybody except maybe an administrator who's heard from above not to tenure people, quote, early, say, in the before their penultimate year where they have to be tenured, because it's a fiscal commitment. The contract says they can go up whenever they want for tenure. Hmm. But yeah, we're, we're getting pushback that not only affects our, our academic freedom, but our ability to engage in shared governance and since tenure has been eroded for the last 30, 40 years, they are claiming more and more power over against the professors to determine academic policy. And it's more of a shift towards this, like you said, corporate university, a capitalist model and away from the idea of the public good. Yes. And there is right. something to be said about like the university is a unique social space. It's a unique part of the public sphere that is not the same as 
as a, a business with employees. It's not, it's not quite the same thing. I agree with you. If we are employees from the state and border regions, right, it does have to pay the bills uh, for, for it to keep functioning, right? But academic freedom is unique in this way, in that the AAUP founders, John Dewey and people, argued that professor is a unique kind of employee. Academic freedom guarantees professional freedom and autonomy from those above them that aren't expert in the fields of knowledge. So we are employees, but we're a special kind of employee, a kind of a paradoxical employee, because they can say, we will hire you, we will buy your labor, and we say, but you can't dictate or prescribe what that labor is about. Mm-hmm. In the public, that's tenure, that's academic freedom. I'd like to at least use this opportunity to kind of say that we hope the public's on our side with that because it does serve the public good in broadening their sons and daughters to come to understand who they are as people and not just get vocational training, but to broaden their view of the world. As Jamal says, maybe in the Northeast, we have a little more context for allowing that kind of thing to be talked about openly. And yeah, I think that's pretty important. Now, is there a particular reason of how adjuncts don't have the ability to engage with academic freedom in a way in which a tenure professor does? Why does a faculty member have to be tenured to have this academic freedom? Why can't all faculty have this? Well, tenure is protects academic freedom, not job security. So if you don't have job security, you don't have academic freedom. Mm-hmm. But it's there for the academic freedom. Then, you know, the crit- critics, administrators, right, think tanks, people that are opposed, this kind of the way the university functions as a separate space from consent, uh, from the national political winds that are blowing, they take issue with that. They take issue with this autonomy that professors have if they have tenure. That's why academic freedom and tenure go together. They're joined at the hip. You do not have academic freedom to raise these issues that you want to raise if you don't have job security tenure to where they can just dismiss you. They don't like what you're saying. We can protect our part-timers to a degree. We go to bat for them. We fight for them. We have chairs that kind of build protections into the, the hiring process. And we fought and fought and fought. My 34 years in the AUP here, we fought and fought and fought for part-timers. And quite frankly, we hadn't won them diddly squat <laughs> because it is too economically important, even to the social justice institution, that they keep them impoverished. Just like the gig workers that Casey is talking. Well, and you know, the I'm thinking a lot about the public good and just about the function, especially of a public university, but just of universities in general, how important they are to our democracy. I mean, we have we need an educated electorate and the kind of I mean, I've heard from so many students, and this was my experience as a student too, that the kind of like high level critical thinking, I mean, we need to be getting to that 
earlier, but a lot of times it's not really until college that, that folks are really engaging deeply in, in learning how to think critically. And we need an educated electorate. Um, we need people who are civically engaged, who, who are not just vocationally trained, but are civically trained, who are uh, capable of, of having, that, that we can have full-throated dialogues about difficult issues. We can have reasoned debate. We can learn about- We can have passionate debate or even angry debate and it's protected. Absolutely. I also, I'm curious on where is the line of academic freedom? Like, does, is there a line where, like, maybe this isn't professional enough for a classroom or this mm. isn't, like, good conduct for a classroom? Is there a line there somewhere? That's it. That's it. Who decides? Well, you know, yeah, who decides this line? Because <laughs> academic freedom does sound, one, very broad. Like, I can take this in many directions, it feels like. So who makes that line? Is it the faculty? Is it the chair, maybe? Is it your colleagues? Where does is it that the students? Fall? Is it the students? Who, where's the line with this? The answer is everybody, right? Unless it's raised as that's a problem, a student raises it. You know, if they don't raise it, then the line, the, the smudginess of the line, right? The messiness, the flexibility of the line is the individual professor gains their expertise and their power in a classroom from the profession at large. It's a communal base of knowledge. They are individually applying it, but yes, right? Is there due process at, at, at that institution? If a student complains to a dean, will there be due process for the prof? If a professor insults a student, is there due process for the student to, to complain and be protected in that way? So we all decide that line, and it's a hard line to talk about, but I've tried to give some clear definitions that the um, AAUB has come up with in court cases as well, but for the last hundred years. And when the AAUP formed in 1915, it was because there was undue pressure from boards of regents to fire people at will, treat professors as most businesses treat their employees. There's a legal right to fire you at will. There is not a legal right to fire professors at will in universities. Because the AUP in 100 years of struggle won that right, or I'd say 70 years of struggle. And now we're back in the struggle again because the nation and the state has not supported public education. And if public education is not supported, then the faculty rights and autonomy are threatened. One, obviously, by the adjunctification. That's a funny way to put it, but the part-time nature of the academy and the kind of what Casey's calling the business model that's at stake, which I get that they have, people have, you know, administrators have to pay the bills and they're not innately against faculty, but there is a structural difference between administrators and faculty over the issues of academic freedom and the purview of the faculty over what they regard as the educational mission, not just the kind of this, in the, in the South with Chris was, could have joined us, uh, uh, the relation of student affairs to academic affairs, which I will maybe another, com- another conversation. It might be, maybe there's a part two to this conversation, mm. but I will also throw out that students definitely have a lot of say within their university. Mm-hmm. And I feel yes. as if students often don't feel like they have a lot of say 
when it comes mm. to these matters um, to speak out and give their thoughts on how they want their university to be ran, how they want their yeah. academics. Students have a yeah. lot more say than they realize. I would just keep going back, at least, you know, to this definition I, I'm proposing about the academic freedom to do scholarship and teach and the students' freedom, academic freedom to learn, right? The, debating the curricula, right? Debating social justice, right? Inquiring of their professors why they take certain positions. These are all the academic freedom of the student. And yeah, you're yeah. right. It should be, it should be. The problem, I think, maybe KC can speak to this also, but administrators, we've had about 400 uh, faculty at Southern since I got here 34 years ago. We used to have, a, you know, maybe a four, I don't know, you know, not very many administrators. And we've got, you know, president, vice president, assistant to the vice president and the dean and the assistant to the dean and the vice dean and it's just expanded and, and student affairs has also expanded because as the business model comes in, the students are the clients and they need to be made comfortable and happy to draw them to this particular university because universities function in a capitalist market. That, that's just the reality administrators have to face. And we all have to face up to that, you know, so. I don't know what you want to do with that. I but. used to say this all the time as a student. You are paying for a product, a.k.a. your degree. You are paying to take these classes. You are paying to be on this campus, to live in the dorms. You're paying for all these different things. So you should be happy with your experience. You should try to get all you can out your experience and help shape what that experience looks like for you. So... I think students have, they should have a lot of say-so when it comes to academic matters, when it comes to their freedom in the classroom and outside the classroom. Because at the end of the day, if you don't pay your bill, you cannot go to class. So I, I think about that. I thought about that a lot as a student, what I was receiving versus paying. Well, the I'm just thinking about how, you know, the adjunctification, which is kind of a fun word to say, of the university, this this move towards a corporate university it also is dovetailed with, I mean, I just think about it in relation to student activism, student protests in the 60s and 70s, and how it, you know, I, I don't have a, <laughs> here's me making an argument without my sources to back me up, but what I've witnessed, like, I don't see that same culture of student protest and student dissent, and I don't know if that has been cultivated on purpose over time um, to, to try to quell protest and to try to placate students, but I, I, I just see that that activism amongst students is not even what, I mean, and it's different in different regions, but I, I, I feel like, you know, let's just keep the, the customer happy or happy enough and then make it to the end of the semester of the school year and then keep moving on. But I don't see a robust sort of student activism. And Jamil and I talk about this a lot. You know, how do you foster that? Is it that we're that we're all too busy? But I think that there's it's, it's always yes to that question. Yeah, <laughs> but if you, I mean, for example, take one point of view. Noam Chomsky. Uh, there's a very interesting video called "Requiem for the American Dream," and he starts off with a a memo by I think it's Supreme Court Justice. Is it uh, Lewis Powell? Is that his name? who sends something out in the 70s to the 
heads of the corporations, to the heads of government, right, and the think tanks. And he says something to the effect of there's an excess of democracy in America that is causing chaos, that the student rights movement, the anti-Vietnam movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, right, the Puerto Rican uh, independence movement, all these movements which tremendously broadened democracy in the United States became a real threat to the rulers, uh, the elites that bring us education in some ways or kind of control these institutions. And one thing you saw immediately once the 70s died down with the Reagan-Bush administration was to try to get rid of the uh, Department of Education. I'm old enough to remember this, but also to severely limit grants to students and to compel students to take loans out. And once you're strapped with 40, 80, $100,000 loans, how radical are you going to be? Now, was that purposely done to quell this expansion of democracy? There is an argument to be made that yes, and there's an argument to be made that economically, which I'm not as you know well-versed about, about the oil crisis, the OPEC oil crisis, the change of the, of, of the gold standard and those kind of things, neoliberalism comes in. I don't know. There's a, a, you know, there's a larger economic argument to be made here. But I do know that that happened, that I went to school for cheap and didn't have any debt, but none of my students have this, are, are afforded this opportunity. So that along with the adjunctification, this seems to me like a pretty concerted effort at the uh, elite level of think tanks and corporate boards and, and boards of regents and state legislature. I'm glad you brought that up too, even about the price difference of college from the 60s to now. Students are, they're either in deep debt or they're working multiple jobs to pay for their education and work their way through. Um, a lot of time away from a student, you know, it creates a lot of distractions from a student where they may not be able to be an activist on their campus, you know. Or an active learner. Yes, yes. Um, there's a lot of privilege being able to go to a university and be in that space, especially if you're able to be in that space and not take lots of debt or have to work multiple jobs to be there. Yeah. Yeah. You feel the pressure to go out and get a job or to be trained for a job rather than uh, to develop yourself as a citizen, uh, as Casey said, or just as a human being who's going to have a life that is not just working. Yes. Yes. Or there's, that. You know, there's, there's love to be had and there's joy to be had, right? There's nature to be, well, there used to be nature to be had. <laughs> so, Tony, actually, that brings us to, you know, a point that we, where we like to end episodes, which is to sort of, you know, to reimagine. So if you, in your wildest sort of imagination, you know, we've really painted a picture of the, the struggle, in, in the context and history, what is academic freedom? Why does it matter? But in your sort of wildest imagination, what could higher ed look like? Well, I mean, I was, I think, fortunate to be around in its heyday. You know, 70s, when I was a student, I could afford 
to go to school and to and to study pretty much around the clock to really deeply learn and to pursue my own way. And I didn't have to work. I could take a year and a half off if I wanted to, to go pursue, a, my, or as my, uh, my stepdaughter Dylan puts it, to live her life as well as go to school. Mm-hmm. So my ideal would be a primarily full-time professor or at least an economically protected professoriate with students that don't have to sacrifice their ability to learn, right? By confronting all kinds of uh, obstacles, particularly economically. But as I saw it, working class students, African-American students, women students, can you believe it in the 60s, Yale for the first time lets women, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, all those things, that to me was the ideal time when the public university enabled an expansion, right? The middle class to include racial diversity and gender diversity. That's the ideal to me. And I think students are fighting for that now. It can be a little irritating at times, right? You know, to be called out and to be judged, right? That kind of behavior. But compared to the other threats that I've laid out, like to academic freedom, being challenged by a student that I'm not, you know, aware enough and sensitive enough, that's part of the deal. (laughs) That's good. I figured you'd like it. I do like it. It's a great story. I co-signed the point. I love it. If I could reimagine higher ed, that's how I would reimagine it. That sounds wonderful. I often think about that time period for universities and college-age students pushing the needle on social um, social progress, you know? Pushing the needle on what we believe is socially acceptable and how we should all function in society and the rights we should have. And moving that needle at such a young age, I think about that constantly. I think about how me and my friends move that needle, how we contribute as a generation to social change and what it will be like when we're older. And looking back, I think about that often. So reimagining higher ed for me would be students engaged in that, engaged in a university, engaged how that university functions, how it looks, what we're talking about, what we're learning and how we're reimagining our country, our state, our city. How can we give back to our city? How can we impact the lives around us, especially outside of university, for folks that may not have the privilege to attend university, how we're impacting their lives, and the work we will do after college. You know, what we're learning here, how we can use that afterwards, and not just in a, I have training to use Excel, but something beyond that, (laughs) I think about. So... That is something nice to reimagine. Well, let's end uh, my my segment with Frederick Doug, uh, Douglass. Power never conceded anything without a demand. Uh, mm. And so if you want to gain power over even knowledge, Casey, in the classroom, students redefined what knowledge was coming at them, what was knowledge then, too, and related it to freedom in broader ways than just academic freedom, which, quite frankly, is a fairly privileged freedom. That is a beautiful note to end on. So thank you so much, Tony, for joining us today. And really, you know, you're pushing the conversations we've been having on the podcast to a new level, I think, or maybe a new new depth in terms of thinking about that economic piece in particular. Mm, About, well, like, what is social justice if students don't have a freedom to, to actually dedicate themselves to an education? 